people don't like the labels. They don't like the label deficit spending, but it, it works perfectly fine. It doesn't create, it itself doesn't operationally create any problem whatsoever. Japan's been doing it with zero rates and everything else for 30 years with no operational problem. They're 250 odd percent debt to GDP. It, it, it works just fine. You know, what doesn't work is somebody says, oh, Japan's debt to GDP is 250 percent. They're going to go bankrupt. They have to do this or that. And then Japan responds with a tax increase because of that statement, which they've done and causes a recession. And it's like that's the problem. I mean, if anything, we should just stop publishing the number. Mm-hmm. I mean, nobody publishes the trade deficit or surplus between Florida and Georgia. And nobody cares because it doesn't matter. But if they started publishing it, somebody would say something alarmist about it, come up with some policy that would be damaging, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's the same thing. Welcome to Activist MNT, a podcast about real-world economics, including modern money theory, and how life changes when you discover it. I'm your host, Jeff Epstein. Today's part two of my two-part conversation with Warren Mosler, where he answers several patron questions. You'll find all of them with written responses from Warren, including data from Fred, in the show notes. In part one, Warren talked about how his ideas for MMT came partially from a love of tinkering and, more broadly, a desire to understand complex systems. These systems can be physical, such as controlling electricity with wires, batteries, light bulbs, and soup cans as a child, or race cars and large passenger ferry boats as an adult. The systems can also be conceptual, such as by playing chess and bridge as a teenager. Before we begin part two, a few notes. First, a country trading raw resources such as coal for highly processed products such as televisions is, as Warren says, not inherently a bad thing. What's bad, as illuminated by the work of Fadl Kaboob and others, is when a country is coerced into making a trade they don't want to make. Second, Warren gives many examples of how government's interface with its citizens is poor from anxious cops during routine traffic stops to regulators making blatant mistakes that can only be undone with inordinate and very expensive red tape. I believe strongly, as best I understand, that these incidents are indeed symptoms of the larger problems that the rich bribe our so-called elected representatives and lock the poor out of their government in myriad ways. The poor have no avenues to stand up to these small injustices so the rich have no incentive to stop this terrible behavior. And finally, third, Warren describes one of these incidents when his company was extorted by the IRS for a million dollars to resolve a blatant error 
by the IRS. Like student loans, of which 90% are owned by the U.S. Department of Education, this is another example of a currency issuer demanding money that it clearly does not need in any practical sense. And now, back to my conversation with Warren Mosler. Enjoy. as normal policy and, and the dilemma is there's some people don't have the down payment should not should they not be able to get the money to buy a car you know even though on paper it looks like they can afford the payments even though you know they're being exploited by these the, the blood banks that we called we called them the blood banks so you know we tried to avoid those as much as possible but I'm not I'm sure we didn't do it 100% and again I was I was the new guy there. There were two other one offs that had been there 15 or 20 years making the real decisions. Hmm. Okay. I, I don't know. There's, there's something different. Like today, to some extent, exploitation is allowed. So today, there must be some kind of a struggle for good people that are out there to not, to, that do have that struggle because it is an option to exploit. It is legal in some senses well, to well, exploit. Well, let me give you a, an extreme example. But somebody goes in to buy a house that's worth that would have normally been two hundred thousand. They pay two hundred. They want to pay two hundred fifty. The the bank knows the appraiser that'll appraise it at two fifty. They know an accountant that'll lie about the guy's income. This all happened in 08. and they, so they get a fraudulent income statement because the bank officer is getting a commission on this. You know, he's he gets paid by volume mm-hmm. from the bank which you should never do because it introduces this kind of moral hazard. But that's what was policy at the time. They were allowed to do that by FDIC, by government, a failure of government. Okay, but it was going on. Okay, the person moves into their house, never makes a payment, uh, takes them two years for the foreclosure process to throw them out, and now they're out in the street. So the question is, who is the victim? Now, the immediate financial victim is the shareholders of the bank. That, that house gets resold for 150000 in a crash or something, and they lose $100,000. Is the borrower a victim? Uh, he's certainly not a party to the fraud, like the loan officer was, the, the appraiser was, and the um, accountants were. They were all party to fraud, and they should have all gone to jail. And if Bill Black, I don't know if you know him, had been sure. prosecuted, they, there would have been hundreds of thousands of those guys in jail where they belonged, but instead... Mm-hmm. You know, they weren't touched. And that, that, and that introduces even more moral hazard. The next cycle, when you know nobody got touched for doing that cycle before. That's, so, but anyway, I'm getting sidetracked. But, you know, I, it's hard to say that the buyer who never made a payment and lived for free for two years, never paid taxes or anything, was a victim. I'm not saying they weren't or that you can't make a case for it, but it's, it's certainly the more difficult case to make. Hmm. Okay. All right. Um, okay. Okay. Uh, Let's move on to patron questions, if I may. Mm-hmm. Um, and let's just go straight through. Uh, you you gave me a very nice surprise where you responded very quickly with the answers. I was not expecting yeah. that. It was pretty cool. Um, so let's just go straight through. I'm going to let's let's uh, and you you know I assume you have your document or your or your email where you can kind of I, remind I don't, but you but you do you you have, you can even answer it for me. Okay, well there you go. I don't even need you anymore. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, <laughs> no, uh, all right. So. All right. So the first one is from Nathan Becker, 
and I just interviewed him. It's a written, it's my first written interview, which is kind of cool. I, I look forward to releasing that. Um, he is all on board MMT. He is skeptical about, he is, he disagrees on one element and this is his question to address that. Um, Nathan says, while it is true that the federal government is a net interest payer and higher interest rates would lead to the government paying more in interest income, isn't it also true that the majority of Americans do not hold government debt as an asset that would earn them higher income, but hold mortgages and other debt instead, which have a negative impact with higher interest rates? I hope you got that because I didn't. <laughs> so, would, so wouldn't higher interest rates be less inflationary given these circumstances in the U.S.? What would yeah. your... What would be your recommendation for controlling inflation while also stimulating economic growth in such a situation? Yeah. Well, look, one thing I didn't put in the written answer is that every central bank I've been dealing with has writes papers on this, you know, publishes papers on this all the time. And, you know, they send it out to 20 different universities and they publish the one that they think best suits their narrative which is that higher rates fight inflation. And, and you'll see these papers come out from the Fed that says, well, if we raise interest rates 1%, that'll bring down the rate of inflation by one-tenth of a percent with a four-year lag. <laughs> okay. So first of all, they're not showing a whole lot with their own and studies. And we won't do anything between now and then, we promise. Yeah. you know, It's across two fiscal cycles, and they've had all kinds of other things happen. And the other 19 papers didn't find that. You know, the one they published is the one that gave them the best result, right? Mm -hmm. So this is probably the one that fudged the data a little bit to, so they could get published. Not, not that, you know, that doesn't happen. We saw it happen with Rogoff and Reinhardt, right? Um, the, grad, the grad student discovered that they fudged the data. Anyway, so uh, to show that 90% was a barrier. Well, it's it's mm -hmm. not, obviously. Well, anyway, um. And so you can't find a central bank study that shows a good correlation with a country with floating exchange rates, you know, without some kind of extraordinary circumstances. Now, when I first started at this savings bank, there was a rate cap of 5% or five and a quarter. We could not pay more than that for deposits by law. So that when rates were raised to like 8%, all our depositors took all their money out. And we couldn't borrow in the wholesale market, so now we couldn't make mortgages anymore. And in fact, we were at, we were stuck, you know, and, and we had a huge SNL crisis back then. All these banks went insolvent because they couldn't replace those deposits. Okay, so that was a specific institutional structure, and under that structure, yes, once rates were raised above five percent, you were going to slow the economy down because you were going to put all the SNLs out of business. They weren't going to be able to make mortgages. Housing was going to market was going to crash, and Banks and there's going to be a lot of bankruptcies. Okay, well, number one, we don't have that institutional structure anymore. So I'm not saying there isn't some institutional structures that we couldn't put in place to cause that effect to be there. But I don't think there's been one since they repealed that cap on what SNLs could pay for savings. At least nothing, nothing material. And none of the studies can find it. Okay, so... You know, if you're saying that because you believe it to be the case, show me a study or show me some evidence that, you know, it's actually, you know, it actually works that way. And then I'll go back to Richard Warner's uh, paper that showed it doesn't work that way. It works the other way, the way I've been saying. So, um, and I'm not making the case that it's a powerful, strong effect. I'm just saying they got it backwards, enough backwards so that they, they shouldn't be considering rate increases to fight inflation with all the evidence and 
theory as I see it, um, is shows the opposite, that the higher rates cause inflation. Okay. And so, yeah. so you say you're, what you said in particular yeah. to response to this was households are net savers and you have a, yes. a, a graph showing that from Fred. Yeah. yeah. Well, the, de- the public debt is 28 trillion, right? So, so somebody's a net, the net say all the net savings adds to 28 trillion and households are a part of that, a large part of it. I've got the graphs and businesses and everybody else is, is a 20, the economy is 28 trillion in net savings. And it's divided among all the sectors. Not that every single breakdown of every minute sector is a net saver, but uh, that's that's the total. At the macro level, the economy is a net saver of $28 trillion. It's a lot. And so when the Fed raises rates, they do it by paying interest, more interest than they were paying if they're raising rates, to those $28 trillion. And in the first instance, that's an increase in government deficit spending. It's a fiscal transfer. I call it basic income for people who already have money. You're just paying out money you know, regularly to people who already have it, pro rata to how much they have. It's highly regressive. And it doesn't all get spent, but some of it does. And to make the case that that's somehow contractionary and fights inflation is, it's, it's a long shot. <laughs> you know, I'd say the burden of proof is on you to show some data or something that shows that these propensities to save can offset that big of an effect from the net interest payments. Hmm. Okay. Um, he he agrees with Roger Roger Mitchell's view, Roger Malcolm Mitchell, I forget it's Roger Mitchell, yeah. uh, MythFighter, um, that the Fed's target rate is maintained by interest rate control, which controls the demand for and purchasing power of U.S. dollars. Increasing demand for dollars reduces inflation. Decreasing demand encourages inflation. This, yeah. um, and then you say, so oh, you can just respond to that. So that that's that's Roger's view, and that's what Nathan agrees with, and you. You can go ahead. So, so when they say increasing demand for dollars, okay, what is what does that actually mean? You know, they, they, that's a very casual way to express it. And I think what they mean is it increases people's desire to borrow. Okay, but I, but he's not here to answer it because there is no nothing per se with demand for dollars. Whatever that means, does it mean demand to sell yen and buy dollars? Is he talking about foreign exchange? Is he talking about you know the desire to borrow to, to go into Debt, which which is is you know borrowing to spend uh, is a, an inflationary bias. So I'm not I'm not sure how he's using it here, but they're using it very casually. And a lot of times people use casual language, and then you know jump from there into some conclusion that's mm-hmm. you know doesn't necessarily follow from anything other than extremely casual language that's undefined. You know, not sure. defined. Sure. So if you read that sentence again, I'll point out the casual language. Okay. Um, sure, I got this. Okay. The Fed's target rate of inflation is maintained by interest rate control, which controls okay, demand. Interest rate control. So what they do is they pay interest on excess reserves. They pay a support rate. And that's and their treasury securities also. But right now at the margin is the support rate they're paying. So by paying interest on that, that becomes the bank's cost of funds. And then the bank's will lend at a markup over that and they'll pay something less than that for savings. So that, so they are setting, as a monopolist, they are setting the policy rate. So you can call that control, but they're just setting a rate. They have to. If they don't pay interest on reserves, the rate goes to zero. So if they want a rate higher than the zero, they have to pay it. And right now, it's only marginally higher than zero. I think it's like 0.15%. Mm-hmm. So right now, they're controlling it for all practical purposes at zero in that they're not paying support. 
Go ahead. Okay. Fed's target rate of inflation is maintained by interest rate control, which controls the demand oh, okay. for stop, and purchase. Stop, stop, stop. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So the target rate of inflation is maintained under the theory that higher rates will cause inflation to go down and lower rates cause inflation to go up. Now, after 10 years of zero rates without inflation going up, and with all their forecasts that inflation should have gone up, they're all saying, I mean, the Bank of Japan, you know, European Central Bank, that their models are broken. Okay, what does that mean? It means that, <laughs> that, that theory isn't working. Okay, their models say that if they lower rates to zero, then inflation will go up to 2%, and it hadn't done it for 10 years. So uh, it hadn't done it for 30 years in Japan. And even in Japan, you know what they say? Well, we just need a little more time. It's like, okay. But, then, <laughs> but they also say their models are broken. So go ahead. Uh, which controls yeah. the demand for and purchasing power of U.S. dollars. Okay, so, so the purchasing power of is – the, the price level, right? So it controls the price level, which they mean controls inflation, I guess. It controls the changes in the price level. Okay, so these changes in interest rates control changes in the price level. And what did you say just before that? Which controls the demand for and purchasing power. Yeah, so the demand for, that's the one that I'm a little bit hung up on. The demand for dollars and the purchasing power of dollars, you know, they're somehow linking those and it would have to be under some one of many possible definitions that are used casually for the word demand for dollars. But go ahead. I'll, I'll, I won't, you know. <laughs> it's fine. I won't, I, won't, I won't linger on that or pin them to that. Okay. Increasing the demand for dollars reduces inflation. Decreasing the okay. demand okay. for so, dollars encourages inflation. So they, they say increasing the demand for dollars. So that must, what the Fed's trying to do is increase, or what they do is they increase interest rates by paying a higher support rate. They, if they change interest on reserves from 0.15 to 1.5, then the rate goes to 1.5. Now, did they change the demand for dollars when they did that? Or did, or did changing the demand for dollars, whatever that means, cause that to happen? No, it's caused by a vote at the Fed. At the end of each meeting, they have a vote. Should this rate be higher, lower, or should, you know, leave it unchanged? Hmm. And they've been voting unchanged, and so it stays unchanged. If they voted higher, it goes higher. Now, the, the operations people at the Fed, all they will do is announce that we're paying a higher support rate. It's not like, okay, we'll change the demand for dollars and that will cause the support rate to go up. So the causation has to be that the support rate itself would then change this demand for dollars. So I think they've got that backwards in the question, right? Okay. Yeah. Okay. All right. So we'll, we'll leave that one. I, you have your yeah. answer there. But you and, can see uh, the problem. You can see the problem answering the question because it's, it's convoluted to begin with. And it's not wrong, but it's, it's kind of got a confused sequence to it. Okay. an implied cause and effect and everything else that makes it kind of difficult to answer without first sorting all that out. Okay. Okay. With your permission, I'll just, yeah. the, your answers, if it's okay, with your permission, I'll release this, uh, this okay. document that you sent me with, so people can see for themselves. Yep. Okay. All right. Great. Uh, so, all right. Next one, Susan. There you go. Okay. Susan Eldridge. Um, if we have to tax to give value to the U.S. dollar, what is the best way to ensure everyone shares this tax obligation fairly? What about taxing corporations? Can we reduce wealth inequality by a wealth tax? And there's a little more, but I'll let you grab that right now. Um, let's hear that again, because again, it's I need to sort out the premise a little bit for you. So go ahead, start at the beginning. Sure. Let's walk um, our way through. 
if we have to tax to give value to the U.S. dollar, what is the okay, best way so to? Okay, so what's what's yeah, and that's not wrong. But what, the purpose of taxing is to create sellers of goods and services who want dollars in return. So we ta- we tax. The purpose of taxing is to create sellers of goods and services who want dollars in exchange for those goods and services, so that the government can then buy them with its excuse me, what I call otherwise worthless dollars. So the dollar is a tax credit that the government can credit you with uh, to buy things. It needs you to need those things. So by imposing tax liabilities, such as, let's say, a tax on your house, now you need dollars or you're going to lose your house. Uh, and so, um, so yes, so that's what's meant by giving the dollar value, not necessarily making it go up in the foreign exchange markets or anything like that. But causing people to sell things to get the dollars. That's, that's, how you, that's what's meant by giving it value. Okay. Okay. Yep. What is the best way to ensure everyone shares this tax obligation fairly? This is- okay. So those are kind of two separate things. It's not like so given that. Right. Um, you know what I mean? So, so the next question is, uh, yes, that's why we need taxes to give the dollar value to create sellers. Is there a way to do that fairly? Equitably, so the, I have two parts to that and to the answer, and I'll give you the answer first. For me, the answer first is to have a property tax, a real estate tax, just like we have at the state and local levels. But mm-hmm. it would be a blanket tax by the federal government, and let's say it's ten percent of the value of your property, just for a number annually, and that would be the only tax. Now, it's fair in that. Everybody has to live somewhere, so you're either going to pay it through ownership or through paying rent to somebody who owns. So it is dividing it equally or somewhat equally. If you live in a more expensive house, then you're going to pay more. So it's somewhat progressive and probably a lot progressive for some people. Somebody with a $40 million house has to pay $4 million a year. Somebody with a $400,000 house has to pay $40,000 a year. So um, in that sense, it's you know progressive. Uh and most important, it has very low compliance costs. I mean, you don't even need to know who owns a house. You send out a bill based on the value, and we already have assessor's values, which you can put a little more effort in if we're worried about them. If you make a mistake, it's not that big a deal. It's not like somebody, big corporation running off, you know, the $20 billion you know, tax dodge. This is fairly, you know, the mistakes are not as costly. Not that they're good or anything. They're all bad, but... Uh, so anyway, you, uh, your only compliance costs are coming up with an assessed value. And then if the, if the tax isn't paid, you can sell the house. Uh, and if there's hardship, somebody's sick or something, you can give an exemption. So uh, compliance costs and service charges for this are extremely low. So why is that important? That's important because other things like an income tax, which is on the surface highly progressive, lower income people don't pay any, higher income people pay the most, turns out to have absolutely enormous real compliance costs. Uh, I think it's probably it's probably not wrong to think in the neighborhood of 15% of GDP for all our transactions taxes, sales taxes, income taxes, all that. If you, add, if you combine it all and um, look at the cost of all the record keeping that has to be done, all the accounting time that goes into it, all the education for the accountants, all the tax lawyers involved, all the 
legal costs involved, all the offshore tax dodges and everything else that's involved, uh, all the educations for these professionals, uh, you know, the, the, the cost and real outputs at least 15% a year. And so any progressivity you get from people with more money paying a higher tax, you know, the, and the progressivity comes from them then consuming less, which is unlikely because they already are making enough to consume all they want, you know, is, is dwarfed by the compliance costs. And if those compliance costs in real terms would go into public services, and this is a free lunch in the sense that by eliminating all these other taxes, these people, you're not taking them away from doing anything useful. They're no longer useful doing what they were doing. These are very smart people. It's a huge brain drain. If they are then involved in public health, public education, uh, public transportation, and you know all kinds of real services that are spread I'd say disproportionately to lower income people with lower income people right now in today's world, and they are higher income people. Then uh, now in terms of the real standard of living, the real standard of living of the lowest income people can be up 30 or 40 or 50%, staggering numbers, which would take decades and decades to get to if you had other programs that actually worked. This can be done all at once just by a shift of real resources away from the compliance costs of this tax structure we have towards public services. Hmm. And it also reduces the percentage of GDP going to the private sector versus the public sector. So we have Medicare for all, we have public education for all, quality public education, quality public transportation, uh, all kinds of energy efficiencies and you know, really smart people now contributing to these types of things instead of contributing to some tax scheme for our major corporations. Uh, just as an aside, J.P. Morgan probably spends $10 billion a quarter on compliance. You know, it's like crazy numbers. Okay. Um, now the private sector may only be 35% of GDP instead of 75%. Because 15% of the private sector was going towards compliance. And, you know, nobody's getting to benefit from it anyway. So now with 75% of the real output or 65 or 75% of the real output going publicly to, um, you know, public infrastructure, real pu good quality public services, you only have a third of the economy left to argue about the distributional issues. So they become diminished. Okay, and it's becomes they become less important. They become lower percentages of GDP, uh, and you've gone an enormous way to addressing these distribution issues at source. Okay, and I have several others too that can complete it, the distribution issue, uh, and you haven't taken anything, any real consumption away from anybody. You've actually enhanced real consumption by fifteen percent of GDP, largely for the lowers 50% of income earners. So long answer to your short question about taxes, but that's, <laughs> that's how I approach it. Clean sheet of paper. Okay. Okay. Um, so she says, what about taxing corporations? And you, you know, it's, you say it's regressive and I, and I believe uh, Dr. Ray's recent paper on that addresses that question as well. He has a paper on the problem with corporate taxes. Um, can we reduce wealth inequality by a wealth tax? And I can, can I'll continue. Yeah. 
you know, yet you can, but it doesn't change the uh, distribution of consumption. Right. If you take 10% of a billionaire's money, he's not going to eat less food or anything else. You're not freeing up consumptions for others to benefit. You're not gaining anything, except mm. you're gaining some social equity. I'm not certainly not against that. My proposals, like the one I just gave you, will address a lot of that. But sure. you're not, you know, it's, all, it's a different point. It's kind of mixing metaphors. Right. It's it's wealth inequality, which is a which is it's kind of an a symptom right. of income inequality. Yeah. It, well, it's it's an issue insofar as how that wealth is used. You know, if it's used for political gain, yeah, th then it's a major problem. But if you've got you know some person living in a two bedroom apartment with a hundred cats and five billion dollars in the bank and just buys cat food, that that inequality is not having any adverse effect on anybody. <laughs> okay, uh, but if you've got a guy with no money who's a wheeler dealer and, and he's leveraged some company into building, you know, 500 foot yachts that he says are pre-sold, maybe they're not, and the whole thing's going to go bankrupt, but whatever. Meanwhile, we're cutting down the rainforest for teak for all these boats. I mean, this guy's causing a big problem <laughs> and, mm -hmm. and he's taking away real resources uh, and undermining the health of the planet chasing down, you know, a possible gain, capital gain for himself. So, mm -hmm. it, you know, so th there are very different things going on here. So you can't just look at the numbering. You have to look at what you're trying to do. Like, what, what do you want this thing to look like when you're finished? And you okay. want it to look like you don't want people with large amounts of money doing crazy consumption that's just, that's like going against the quality of life for everybody else. Okay. Okay. Uh, so the last part of Susan's first question is, since we already have progressive taxation, isn't the problem due to, to tax loopholes? Would enforcing tax laws already on the books reduce yeah. wealth inequality? It, the answer is yes, it would reduce nominal wealth inequality. But the thing to that is, all right, you've gained that, but it's not how material is that in with regards to any of our social problems. I don't think it's material at all with regards to our current social problems, other than undue political influence from high-end people. And it will reduce that only marginally, if at all. So I've got better ways to reduce their political influence, in which case this thing doesn't, there are no social gains from it. Yes, you reduce income inequality, but you, there are no actual social gains. Okay. Okay. Uh, she has another question. I'll come back to that uh, later. Uh, next question is from Ganesh, um, and he asks, when the government spends, for example, to create infrastructure, doesn't it create new assets in exchange for the spending? Well, the, it creates, see, it's not in exchange for the spending. It's when it spends, it pays you and it pays you dollars, which are balances in your member bank's reserve account, balances in your account. And those dollars are financial assets. So those they're tax credits. They can be used to pay taxes. So yes, spending creates financial assets. Now the government then allows you to transfer those from reserve accounts to securities accounts, which shifts it from one financial asset, a, called a checking account, to another financial asset, a treasury security called a savings account. So, so government deficit spending winds up creating new savings accounts, new net financial assets. That's true. Okay. Okay. Uh, could we say, continuing, could we say the yeah. budget is balanced with these new assets that are created against the liabilities of the treasuries issued? No, the, the new assets are assets of the uh, holder of the treasury securities. They're liabilities of the treasury. They're not assets of government. 
So the government has, has still has net li- new liabilities on its books. Okay. Okay. Does it need to be balanced with revenues, taxes, or pay-fors? And this uh, it's well, kind of obvious. It, already- yeah, you know, you got to define the word need. Under congressional law, which has a debt ceiling, you might need to do it or else, you know, the police are going to stop you, right? <laughs> the Capitol Police are going to come out and stop the Treasury from spending. So, mm-hmm. yeah, you got to go by the need. There's no operational need. There's no accounting need. So there are policy, you know, uh, as a matter of policy, Congress creates needs. They can create the need for a deficit. They can create the need for a surplus. They can pass the law and create any accounting need that they want. Okay. Uh, but no, there's no operational constraint. Okay. Where in its books does the government value and list all the new assets created? And I understand some of this is undermined, but but I'm just going to keep yeah, going. Okay. Well, there. And all, uh, let me one more sentence. Yeah. Where in its books does the government value and list all the new assets created? If we spend billions to educate our youth, those human resources are also new assets worth billions to yeah. the economy, if not more. Right. So it, it doesn't list those. First of all, it creates liabilities. In the first order, you know, the treasury securities. What it spends money on, I'd say it did build a bridge. That bridge is an asset. And I, I don't know where that's on their books. They might have the National Forest listed as an asset or something like that. Uh, I don't think the military lists as an asset all its guns or all the planes or all these things. And they may, they may list that somewhere, but it doesn't matter for operational purposes as a government. And it's ridiculous knowing that bombs are deliberately created to blow up. So as soon as yeah. one blows up, they have to tell accounting to. Yeah. Well, let's say they build an army base. It's, it's, you know, they need to keep track of how many bombs they have in inventory. They do that. They know how many army bases they have, but I don't know that anybody totals national assets. Every once in a while, I've seen an academic do it. They'll say, oh, the public debt is 28 trillion, but the national assets are a hundred trillion. So, so we're okay. You know, that's like violating learner's law. That's, you know, mixing metaphors. That's like conceding the point that the, the public debt might be an issue if it wasn't for the assets that are high. They're totally separate things. Hmm. One's just an account of outstanding tax credits, tax, you know, a, li- a liability. And the other are f- physical assets that the government has. They're not, they're not related. And interestingly, they used to be related when we we're on the gold standard. It was called national savings, but I won't get into that because of time. But okay. that was a long, long time ago. And right now, there, there's no, um, you know, that's like watching the wrong channel on the television set. Okay. All right. So the final part of this question, which is yeah. kind of kind of showing where he's coming from. I'm just trying to see if there's another way around the balancing the budget argument. A friend of mine who I introduced MMT to asked me this, so I thought I'd pose it. He felt like if we could keep some of the sound economics framework by speaking all of the new asset, speaking of all the new assets that come from the spending, it would be more palatable to people and politicians. And actually, I'll say, catering to ignorance is just something that I'm just completely against. You do, you don't you don't yeah. cater to ignorance. You just don't do that. Right. So that's what something like the trillion dollar coin does. The Treasury is allowed to mint a coin, platinum coin, called stamp a trillion dollars on it. So it could be a small coin. You don't use a trillion dollars worth of platinum. You use about 50 cents worth of platinum. And uh, sell it to the Fed, and the Fed will buy it. And it doesn't count as deficit spending. Okay, because when the Fed buys gold, it doesn't count as deficit spending. If the Fed were to buy the national parks from the Treasury, that would count as deficit spending. So there are certain things you can do that don't count as deficit spending, even though they're just intergovernmental transfers. And they create balances in the Treasury's account the same way that 
um, balances are always created. The Fed just credits the account. Okay. So yeah, you can you can you can do that, and it fits under the current legal institutional framework. But it's number one operationally, it's completely unnecessary. We can just simply keep doing what we're doing now. Just stop the Treasury from issuing anything longer than let's say it can only issue three month bills, which are you know practically cash anyway for all practical purposes. And and so we could sell you know a zillion three month bills. Fed will put the money you know to the private sector. Uh, and the Fed puts some credits the money to the Treasury's account when the private sector makes the payment. Uh, and uh, like we've been doing for the last 200 years or whatever. And, you know, we've been able to deficit spend whatever we want without an operational issue. We had World War II. We just had debt to GDP of 120% last year, went up that high. We had $5 trillion of COVID spending without any taxing. There wasn't any issue of doing it the way we're doing it now. Treasury sells Treasury securities and Fed credits its account and it spends the money, which is the money that is then replaces the money that was used to buy the Treasury securities. It's all circular anyway. So there's no there's no particular need to change what we're doing, except people don't like the labels. They don't like the label deficit spending, but it, it works perfectly fine. It doesn't create, it itself doesn't operationally create any problem whatsoever. Japan's been doing it with zero rates and everything else for 30 years with no operational problem. They're 250-odd percent debt to GDP. It it works just fine. You know, what doesn't work is somebody says, oh, Japan's debt to GDP is 250 percent. They're going to go bankrupt. They have to do this or that. And then Japan responds with a tax increase because of that statement, which they've done and causes a recession. It's like that's the problem. I mean, if anything, we should just stop publishing the number. Mm-hmm. I mean, nobody publishes the trade deficit or surplus between Florida and Georgia. And nobody cares because it doesn't matter. But if they started publishing it, somebody would say something alarmist about it, come up with some policy that would be damaging, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's the same thing. Okay. All right. Great. So next one is from Advate. What does Warren think of the idea to eliminate all subnational taxes? And you kind of address this with property taxes. Instead yeah. of states, cities, counties, localities, et cetera, collecting local taxes, all of them just submit budgets to the national government and the government gives them whatever money they demonstrate that they need. There's yeah. there's more, but but I'm stopping yeah. where you wrote well, something. I, I, I'm good with eliminating all the entire local level thing, just like that question address. Uh, I wouldn't have them submit budgets. I just give them a distribution on a per capita basis as determined by Congress, and it would probably be a distribution high enough to cover the need of the most needy communities and the rest would just get some extra. That's all. So, uh, so yeah, I would do that. And there'd be other considerations such as you look at their total, the total that they're getting, because some, you know, they're already getting all kinds of federal transfers now. So, but you look at the whole picture and then just add, per capita transfer to what we're doing now sufficient to uh, cover, you know, the needs of the most needy um, state. And I would just do it to the states and let them redistribute it to their localities. I wouldn't go to local. Hmm. Okay. Okay. Uh, so continuing on, they get rid of all many layers of subnational tax collecting apparatus and staffing. The national yes. government would have sufficient budget analysts and auditors to make sure all budgets are reasonable and sufficient for the well-being of local citizens. Yeah, so I, I agree with getting rid of all that for compliance cost purposes I spoke of before. 
mm-hmm. enormous saving, real savings. Our, our prosperity would go up beyond imagination from this, the, the real gains to the economy. Nobody can imagine how strong those are. So, mm-hmm. uh, and then we don't need all these economists to do all that. They just do it per capita. Okay. And if, okay. You, if you make a mistake, you increase it a little bit, or if you, if you think it's too much, you can decrease it. But there's no reason to uh, do anything more than that. Okay. And uh, this you agree with. You, you say that you agree with this in your written response. Yep. So I'll just read this. There could be a national standards of public service, uh, which dictates and mandates all the public services to be provided to all citizens for their well-being and flourishing. No more instances of localities going bankrupt or defaulting. No more blatantly unfair local tax codes. Eliminate all sales tax except as needed to encourage socially healthy behavior like taxes and cigarettes alcohol, yachts, luxury items, so on. Also eliminate all local taxation to fund public schools. So totally, all schools get the same money per child from the national government, perhaps adjusted to local cost of living. Imagine the elimination of all the time and effort that goes into calculating, paying, and processing the myriad of local taxes. You say yes to all that. And I I just want to say briefly that local taxation to fund public schools is, is exactly what puts the rich in charge of lower below college and the government not funding all education is what there and also college is what puts rich donors in charge of colleges so they can say i don't like what that teacher's teaching get rid of him if you want my money so that's a big that's a big subject that's a big kind of and it's and it's worse than that because we don't have levelized corporate taxes the states compete with each other offering the lowest tax rates to bring in as much many businesses as they can, right? Mm-hmm. And, and the way you do that is by cutting your education budget. Mm-hmm. And so it's a huge race to the bottom. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, so when Amazon came into Brooklyn or wherever they were gonna go, Queens to you know, negotiate at a good rate, there was a big uproar about that. The, the real answer for a congressman like uh, you know, AOC was that, look, what we have here is a national race to the bottom because of congressional policy that allows you know, hasn't levelized taxes across the states. We need to levelize these. Now I'm against the corporate tax entirely, but that's a different matter. But we need to levelize these taxes, even if it's at zero, uh, so that the states aren't put in a position of bidding against each other, which lowers the quality of the public services, such as education, healthcare in all these states, uh, and in this, you know, brutal race to the bottom. And, 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 and that's how you do it. You don't start demonizing these corporations for playing the states off against each other. You demonize mm-hmm. Congress for setting it up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. It's like, and yeah. That was, it's that was a huge teaching moment lost because I got to some of her supposed, you know, that I th- thought were contacts and, uh, you know, nothing happened. So I, I was very disappointed. Mm. Yeah, it's it's like it's horrible that the corporations do this, but what's worse is that they're allowed to do this. Well, That's they're required worse. to they're required to do it. You know, you can't survive as a corporation unless you do this. Your costs will be higher, and you'll go out of business. This is all set up by Congress with their institutional structure. And but it's also a circle because who are they paid by to do this? But but the corporations, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, um, yeah. So let me just say, who allows corporate? Who allows corporations to make the contribution back to Congress, right? Right. So, who so are the, it's, by it's, the corporations who are owned by the corporations. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So right. you've heard my campaign finance reform, uh, like forty percent or something like that. Yeah, to yeah, yeah. Yeah, that eliminates that whole thing, and it doesn't cost no federal money, and it's simple, it's elegant, but it doesn't even get considered. Right. 
Right. Um, okay. Uh, I, and I, I just want to be clear. I am putting the writ- your written responses into the show notes, so there's more subtlety. There's there's a couple okay. like you know, someone thanks you and so on, and so people can see everything in the show notes. Um, Gregory John Olson. Since the MMT lens reveals that foreign exports are a real cost for the exporting countries, why do sovereign governments place foreign trade so highly? Yeah, and you know they're they're controlled by the um, exporters. They're exporters. The exporters control the narrative because they're they've got a lot of money. They're visible. They employ a large number of people, though a small fraction of the population. It's still sometimes millions of people, hmm. uh, and it seems intuitively obvious. When it's not that, uh, you know, they're out there making money for the country or something like that. You know, look, Donald Trump was a huge um, supporter of these exporters. And mm-hmm. President Obama said we uh, import and consume too much and we don't export enough. We've got we've to consume less and export more. And who does he put in control? <laughs> Jeff Immelt from General Electric, who is like our, mm-hmm. one of our largest exporters. Mm-hmm. Okay, so it's, this, is, this is bad. And the mm-hmm. European exporters... Um, you know, they're also in control. And they're, and so you see all these policies coming out that support exports, and those people are getting their contributions. And you know how the whole thing works. You don't need to tell me about that. I, I used to tell this story about, uh, I forget who was headed to Central Bank at the time, and his little boy comes home and says, says, Daddy, there were these bad men following me in this big black limousine. And he says, well, ask them what level they want the euro to be. Uh-huh. <laughs> But those are the exporters, right? And they're mean people. They're not like nice people. They didn't get to the tops of their professions being nice people. Mm. They're, they're ruthless people or they wouldn't be there. That they have and to they're survive. allowed to be ruthless because no one will do anything about it. Well, well, they have to be ruthless so they don't survive in that business. Right, which you, is look, why look, look, look. which is why look. they have to be ruthless because that that's, that's the nature of who they are and, and the nature of a profit business. But right, the government right. – the government well, has to step in and to to give them boundaries so that they don't go so far that they harm the rest of us. I mean, that's the that's the yeah, conflict look, theory of inflation. Yeah, but they're like supporting militias in you know Latin America, you know, with the help of the CIA. I mean, it's bad. Yeah, this yeah, is a lot, this is a lot deeper than just that. This okay. is this is seriously bad stuff. Okay, and I okay. say today's exporters are the. You know, what Marx used to call – what Marx called the capitalist, that's today's exporters. So if you want to look at what all these capitalists do, that's what today's exporters do. Today's wow. domestic producers, they're fine if everybody gets a pay increase if the minimum wage goes up because they all pay it. And now there's – it's those people are their customers. But the exporters, their customers aren't here. Their customers are somewhere else. They want to see – as low a wage as possible, as, you know, and best terms for them. They don't care what happens here. That, they have no interest whatsoever for the domestic economy. That's Zero. interesting. Like someone yeah. who you're at dinner with is on their cell phone. They're not with you and they're not with that person. And when they're with yeah. that person, they're on their cell phone. So they're not with that person or with you. You know, they're never with <laughs> anyone. Um, yeah. uh, actually, uh, uh, I have a memory of you uh, – Maybe three months after I discovered MMT, and, and uh, I discovered it in February 2018, um, and I have a memory of you and Steve Keen on uh, Real Progressives on this yeah. debate of of exports being a cost, and you know, you guys were yeah. debating that, and I didn't I didn't understand what I was hearing. Yeah, and I want I want to go back and listen to it again. You know, now yeah. I, knowing at least a, a good amount more. I want to go back and listen to that. I just, I have a, I have a, a memory of, of you too. I just remember this feeling of, 
I have no idea what they're saying, but this is really important. <laughs> I just know it. Um, okay. Uh, in, uh, continuing, Greg. In Australia, where I live, the performance of our economy is always predicated on a favorable, favorable export market. This is never challenged by politicians nor economics media journalists. Why is this so? Well, you, you know, your imports are an important part of your uh, consumption and your standard of living. And, and they come from, you know, uh, indirectly, usually they come from export revenues, allow you to uh, have that import. So your real wealth of any country is your total domestic production. That's your for your consumption. Like you get to keep everything you make yourself, uh, plus whatever you import, minus whatever you export. So what you produce yourself makes your pile of stuff, let's call it your pile of stuff, larger. Imports add to your pile of stuff. And exports make it smaller. That's part of your pile of stuff you got to send to somebody else. Uh, and so you want to optimize domestic output. That's good. And you want to optimize your real terms of trade. You want to get the most uh, for your exports. So, if, And uh, I used to tell at Bill Mitchell's conference, you know, the boat leaves Newcastle full of coal for Hong Kong, and it comes back full of television sets, something like that. And you want to get the most television sets for your coal, and that will determine your um, real standard of living. Now, they don't really care, or they don't care at all what level the Australian dollar is. People say, well, if you do that and this, the currency will go down and all that. You know, Hong Kong exchanges coal for television sets at world prices. It's got nothing to do with whether the Australian dollar is up or down. Hmm. That coal is going to give you so many television sets. Okay. Hmm. What, what, what the Australian dollar matters for is who has to dig the coal and who gets to watch the television sets. Hmm. Okay. It's all about internal distribution. And internal distribution is almost entirely controlled by fiscal policy anyway, and fiscal rule, you know, the whole government, all of fiscal policy, not just the deficit, but all of fiscal policy. And, it's, and that gets changed with every budget. So it's all there to make whatever modifications to real consumption you want. And, it, and it's all contrived anyway. None of it's like natural. Mm-hmm. And so uh, you want to optimize your domestic. So that's why you want to keep full employment at all times with as high a productivity as possible. Productivity is critical for improvement and if you in those terms. You want quality productivity and uh, optimize your real terms of trade. And it's not, and it's not about the level of the uh, currency. Those are the distributional issues. And that gets confused an awful lot uh, in, the, in the discussions. And it comes back to, as you say in your written response, how powerful politically are your exporters? That's why. Yeah. So, so if you're net exporting, that means you're sending, you could have been importing more. And somebody's building foreign exchange reserves. So if, if you're net exporting, you know, you're accumulating financial assets. You don't need to do that, but the exporters like that, okay? Because it's done by depressing domestic demand. That's where the net exporting comes from, and other institutions, bits of institutional structure that help them, and uh, keeping wages down through you know a currency. When you sell your currency to buy foreign exchange, you're keeping wages low enough to support your exporters. So, um, I, and I know we're short of time. Otherwise, I could work you through that. Anyway, it's chapter five in the seven deadly innocent frauds. <laughs> okay, okay. Um, uh, and and you said coal for TVs, which is which brings up you know low value added raw materials in exchange yeah. for high value added you know highly processed things, which is yeah. 
you know, files work. Um, okay. Final yeah, but see that, now look, so I've seen some MMT proponents arguing you sh- that's not a good thing. And that's been an argument in Australia as well. And I disagree. Okay. Because, you know, who, went, who do you buy your TV set from? You buy it from the lowest cost producer. Who is that? That's the guy who's got his workers to live on 1,200 calories a day somehow, right? And then when they die, he uses them to make power for his factory. And so uh, morally, that's not a good thing. But from an economic point of view, you're getting the most TV sets that you could get for your coal. And if you had to, for the same productivity at home, if you were making your TV sets instead of digging coal, you'd have to oppress your workers like that to have the same economic advantage. So, mm-hmm. it, you know, I... I I don't agree with that. It's well, not, I mean, also TVs it, are different than than food, and you know. Well, same fuel. with food. There's, food has very low profit margins, and if you had to grow your own food, it would take a whole lot more working hours than it takes to export what than to you know produce what you're exporting to get that food. Uh, and so uh, you're you're going to have a real economic loss. You're going to be tying up more people and winding up with the same food. And so those people can't do other things. They can't teach school or provide healthcare services or build more things for that you might want to trade or whatever. Build homes and build infrastructure. They can't do that if they're growing food, right? Okay. And so you got to you've got to keep productivity in this mix. Otherwise, now if it's just a strategic reason to want to grow your own food because you're afraid it might get cut off, even though it's a productivity loss and it's costing your economy, you know, your real standard of living. Fine, I, I understand that. But don't tell me it, it, there's an economic benefit. You got to separate right. your strategic benefits from your economic benefits. And yeah, I think probably the best. Per- yeah, I think probably the I mean, best example is 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 raw like oil or coal, and it, and then you have yeah. to import fuel. Yeah. Well, you're usually much better off doing that than doing the processing yourself. Hmm. Okay. Well, I don't know. you know, maybe strategically you're not because in a war you're going to get cut off or something, but. Apart from that, in real economic terms, none of that stuff is high markup anymore. They're all commodities. Gasoline is just as much of a commodity as crude oil underneath it. Okay. You know, the margins are down to nothing. Car, the automobile business is commoditized. You add the cost 25% to the cost of materials, and that's what you pay for a car due to mass production and everything else. There's not a lot to be gained, you know, building that car yourself rather than exploiting, exporting the raw materials. Okay. If anything, if anything, there's a lot to be lost because of the value added of what your people will do otherwise, rather than, you know, work at a car factory, is is much higher than any gain you'll get from, okay, building your own cars. Yeah. Okay. All right. Um, so there's two questions from Kevin, and there's one last question from Susan, and then that's it. Um, so Kevin, Kevin Shea. Number one, ask Warren to comment on the velocity of money vis-a-vis the money supply and inflation and the effects fiscal spending has on the money supply, the velocity of money, and inflation. Okay, so, you know, that's a pretty old debate. And um, so, you know, the word velocity keeps coming in there. And... So that's saying if if I buy something from you and you buy something from me and I buy something from you and you buy something from me, we can have a lot of trade back and forth and we don't need to have a lot of uh, money supply to do it. Mm-hmm. So, so that's, not, that's not applicable. You can do that with no money supply. In fact, it's all done kind of with no money supply because, you know, I borrow money from the bank. I buy your house. You put your money 
uh, you, you pay me to do your heart surgery and I pay off my mortgage. And the whole thing's been done and there's no money supply. Defined as M2, defined as bank deposits. So you can't you know, say, say well, well, we assume a constant velocity of money. Like it takes, there is some constant out there where if you do have these transactions, it can, that implies there's a certain amount of money behind it that supports it. Well, there really isn't any money behind it supporting transactions. Money doesn't support transactions to begin with. So yes, you can assume a constant amount and then you can look at correlations and you can maybe find something and come up with something. But it's it's not a narrative that has any application to the the way things work. And the, and the causations break down horribly, you know, uh, if there are any, they don't tend to last very long and break down or else they're correlated because of something else that's also just as meaningless. So it's just not a useful way for me to look at anything. It's not a useful narrative. It doesn't, doesn't help understand what's going on unless you come up with this almost fairy tale. But like I talked to you about money going back to forth, which requires, which is associated with us having so many dollars in our pocket. So mm-hmm. if we have twice as many dollars in our pockets, then there'll be t- twice as much going back and forth. I don't know. I don't. I, it's not a very satisfying narrative. It doesn't hold up under any examination. Okay. Uh, I don't. I don't know why. I don't use it. And if you want to, fine. But I don't. I'm not going to bet on anything happening because of that. Okay. Okay. Number two from John, uh, from Kevin is ask Warren to please provide data on his interpretation of the effects of rate of increases through the interest income channel, i.e. specifics of the on the amounts of interest income pumped into the economy with a rate increase versus the slowdown effects of the same rate increase on lending and the economy. Yeah, so again, Richard Warner's paper shows that the interest rates lead the rate of inflation for whatever that's worth. And that's, you know, a credible central banker piece. and other people have showed me charts and graphs that correlate it. And, I, you know, um, I think it's the numbers are so overwhelming that the burden of proof is the other way around. So uh, if you look at the economy for every without the government spending on interest, just the economy interest for every dollar saved, there's a dollar borrowed. So if you go to a bank for every loan, there's a deposit, for example. And so if you raise or lower rates, you're only shifting money from depositors to savers, uh, to uh, borrowers or from borrowers to savers. So when you raise rates, borrowers are worse off, savers are better off. So the question is, if you raise rates, do you slow down borrowing? Uh, maybe. But does spending from the savers go up because they have more money? And so they try and determine what the how those differ. It's called the propensities to spend from interest income. So maybe uh, the propensity to spend might be 50%. So that would mean the uh, the borrower would cut back half and the, if they both had the same propensity, but the, you know, his spending, but the saver spends 50% more. And so um, in that case, there'd be no difference in the economy. So you have to look at the differences in the propensities to spend. Is the borrower's is the borrower more sensitive to this than the saver? So I, I used to visit the Fed and talk to them about it. And there was a guy named Steve Oliner who did that for a living there. He was one of their PhD economists long-term. And I asked him about this. He said, well, yeah. He said, we, you know, we, I look at, I've looked at that a lot over the years. 
And uh, when I do the econometrics, I can't detect any difference, but I believe that there is a difference in that it does favor the borrowers. It's like, okay. So <laughs> there, let's say he's right. There is a difference. It does favor the borrowers. But then on top of that, you've got the treasury that has a net payer of interest to the economy. And it's large because with a debt to GDP ratio of 120%, it ultimately means that uh, 1% increase in interest rates adds you know, over 1% of interest income to people who already have money. And sure, they're not all going to go spend it. Maybe their propensity to save is only 20%. But that's more than enough to offset the uh, difference between the propensities of the other two groups in the economy. Uh, and, and if you look at you know, how low that could be, how low that propensity to spend could be when you have 120% debt to GDP, it's very low. It's probably like, you know, if even only 5% of it gets spent, it's probably a bigger factor than the other one. Now, that doesn't mean it's going to have a large effect on interest rates, but it means it tells you something about the direction. Not, I'm sorry, on inflation, but it tells you something about, or not even inflation, but it's not, doesn't mean it's going to have a large effect on net spending, but it tells you something about the direction. It's going to increase spending. So it's, it's pretty hard to look at the numbers now at 120% debt to GDP and say that an increase in interest rates isn't going to cause total spending to go up unless there's something else going on in the economy. It's pretty hard to attribute it just to say, okay, if I increase payment, all else equal, I just start increasing my payments to people who already have money by you know, $300 billion a year, that's going to cause total spending to go down. It's pretty hard to say that. Okay. Uh, you know, if you can, fine, make the case, but you can't do it just, you know, offhanded because central banks have tried and they can't do it. Okay. All right, good. Um, so the final patron question is the second one from Susan. And she says, a little Euro-centered, but my other question has to do with the oft-repeated refrain that other countries pay more in taxes, pay much more in taxes, Denmark, Sweden, Norway, but they get much more social services. So we should do the same here. But while they issue their own currencies, even though they belong to the EU, I believe, they are pegged to the Euro. So why is why is it so so is that why they pay much higher taxes because they're in the EU? And if, if I may, before you respond, it's just – it's like focusing on taxes is like – is just focusing on such a narrow thing. It's like are they happy? So if they're happy, then who cares if they're paying higher taxes? Yeah. Because if they're happy, then the taxes that they have is not taking away from their happiness. But please. Yeah, so uh- – the answer is the tax liabilities are needed to create sellers of goods and services. So if the government here is spending 25% on GDP, and 26 or 27%, we have tax liabilities that are maybe 25%. You know, we run a little bit of a deficit. If we want to spend 50% of GDP, we're going to need tax liabilities that run 45% or 47%. There's some number, whatever it is, to have a full employment economy. And that's what they're doing over there. So. Uh, so if we went to um, free public education, which would add, I don't know how much, uh, higher education across the board, might add 5% to GDP, we, you know, our tax liabilities probably would need to be increased somewhat. I don't know how much. 
we might have that much excess capacity now. We might be that far away from a full employment economy, so we might not need them. But if we were at a full employment economy, we would probably need an extra something less than that in terms of additional tax liability so that there are more things for sale for the government to buy because the government wants to add to its purchases. And assuming now it's buying at the margin, whatever is for sale, any more buying would not bring out any, you know, there aren't any more sellers. They just have to wind up paying more and getting less and all that. Then, uh, yes, but it's not because of the euro. They all had the same situation uh, before the euro because their public services are much higher. So uh, if we went to their level of public services, we would need to, to do that. And to your point, it's a, it's a policy choice. Right. It's just like like taxes are just like I don't care what you do for me as long as my taxes are low. It's just a it's just a very narrow focus of not looking at anything else. But yeah, um, it's a it's a race to the bottom. It's not what collective action is all about. It's a race to the bottom. That's an interesting way of putting it. Like I, I think of like, you know, I see I want my taxes lowered. And the question is, okay, well, why are your taxes so high? So what are you really looking for here? But they focus on the taxes and they don't, they don't, you know, they don't, you know, they don't want to go deeper because the taxes are such a, yeah. an important, I don't know, label or, or, or you know, calling cry. Yeah. I, I can't think of the right term. Well, but, look, one of the prop, the big problem is the interface between government and the population is horrible, right? People don't think the government can do anything right. Anything the government does wrong is amplified by the media, and I'm not saying they shouldn't do that. But uh, and all the you know the let's call it corruption, but all the mistakes and the people that get caught doing things, and, and all the the waste that gets you know that comes out and bailouts or whatever. I mean, people people just like they don't think the government can do anything right, and so the idea is you know I don't I don't want them to do it anymore. You know, so there's this very large group of people that wants less government because they don't think they can do anything. And my proposals, while there's more government spending on a lot of things, uh, there isn't more government. You know, the government's federal government, what they do best is write checks, not not go out and put shovel-ready people to work. They can't do that anymore. I'm not saying they couldn't do that during the Depression, but right now, this government we have, I don't think there's any confidence that they can actually, that they have any physical competencies, right? But their checks don't bounce. That's the advantage they have right now. And so things can be, I, I've proposed instead of for infrastructure that the government just gives checks to the states, if they want to do a trillion dollars, you know, whatever that is, $200 billion a year per state on average, do it on a per capita basis so the big states get more. And then require the states to publish at the end of the year exactly what they did with the money so their voters can decide whether they like their state government or not and just keep the federal government out of it. Now, you can have federal standards so for quality and whatnot, but not for uh, not at the operational level. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, but that's because of the specific circumstances of the U.S. government right now. And what I see as its core competencies, I, ju- I just don't see them. And so you have to, we have to work with that. You know, you got to fight with the army you got, and that's part of the army we got. Right. I'm sure you would agree that yeah. the, the, that it's deliberately the the people who want, you know, the rich. I'll just just to be crude and, and simple here, the rich who want everyone to run into their arms, the yeah. private sector. They're the ones who corrupt 
the government to make it appear incompetent, and they lock the people out as well. So just as just you know, as part oh, of that, get, so they can't do better. That. And and that's you know, so they're they're behind the scenes are destroying the the government, roughly speaking. So those people can say, oh, the government can't do anything right. Let's run to the rich people, even though they're yeah. the ones who caused the problem to begin with. Okay, so what, but I'm talking about more micro than that. So I was at a exit meeting of the bank. I owned a small bank that are, what turned out to be our last exit meeting. After the examiners finish, they, they have a meeting. And we're there on the board of directors. And we're sitting there. And these are all 60-year-old guys in suits, you know. And, uh, and the account, they're accountants and they're businessmen and lawyers. We got half a dozen directors and these regulators. And the regulator says, well, we're downgrading your management from a four, which is you know, four out of five, which is good, to a two, which is unsatisfactory because you don't have a written strategic plan to operate the bank, which is required by law. And the president's Hugh Jacobs, nice guy, and he's a very capable guy. And this is his career. And he looks at him and he says, well, yeah, of course we have a written strategic plan, sir. He's trying to be as polite as possible, right? Uh, in fact, you were in my office yesterday for five hours going over it with me, which is a fact, okay? He'd been in there five hours going over this plan. And, and the regular says, oh, oh, okay, oh yeah, 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 okay, I remember. Okay, two weeks later, the um, expert, you know, the report, the regulatory report comes down, and in it, management's been downgraded, which is you know, a bad reflection on him personally, from a four to a two, for not having a strategic written plan for the bank. And he calls the regulators back in Atlanta, and he says, "What's going on? I thought we discussed that there." He says, well, what? "They say, well, you have to go to this board and that board and file a complaint, and then they'll have a hearing for you and to see what to do." Hmm. Okay, so. This is an interface between us, you know, nice guy, business community. They're not nobody there was a billionaire or anything. They were probably worth anywhere from half a million to a million or something. So they were well off, but not crazy rich or anything. Hundred thousand a year type guys. And but there's an interface between them and the government, federal government. And that goes home to their families, that goes everywhere. You know, and that's just like one example. I've got like a hundred of those. Mm-hmm. That there's just been such a problem with you know, the IRS was auditing us and they you know, they didn't have a case. They'd made a mistake. And it's like, look, we we had a firm at the time that was doing okay. And they said, yes, we we don't have a case. You know, it's just difficult. But if you fight us in court, you're going to spend, you know, a million or $2 million or whatever it is fighting us. So uh, if you'll settle for that, we'll, we'll step away. It's like, <laughs> this is nuts. We didn't do anything. Settle for, yeah, All right? exactly. Yeah. Okay. Everybody said, pay them the money because you don't want to be in court with the IRS. It looks bad for running your business. They know that. Yeah. It's just plain extortion. Yeah. Right. That's just two examples. Now, the government and the has ratchet no- is in favor of them. The ratchet, meaning, yeah. meaning it instantly is bad for you, but for them, yeah. you have to go through a huge process in order to, to undo what they did instantaneously. Okay. My, my, my friend Jay Regan was at Princeton Newport Associates when Rudy Giuliani was at New York. He was their prosecutor. And he gets taken out in handcuffs with the rest of his group. And I go, what's going on, Jay? He says, well, if they find me guilty of everything, I get a $200,000 tax refund. (laughs) And two years later, they dropped everything. I'm sure he got his tax refund. And Giuliani made his name for being tough on Wall Street, you Mm. know, and gets promoted. Okay. Mm. Nobody knew what he was like then the way they know now. But now you know what this guy's like. 
Okay, so these are the interfaces between government and the population. Their hospitality is horrible. Mm. You know the story of Kamala Harris with where she continued to prosecute somebody on a technicality, even though he'd been shown to be innocent. Mm. You can't, okay, if we're going to run government this way, there, it's that's our major, major problem right now. Okay, and, they've and, created and this, such a bad taste back, in people's mouth. Yeah. And this goes back to, yeah, it's horrible that's happening. What's worse is that it's allowed to be happening. And that yeah. we, as just regular people, are somewhat to blame for allowing this to happen. Well, I, let's not forget about the blame, okay? We can talk about what we have to do. First, we have to recognize that this is a critical problem right now. That's not going to be fixed tomorrow. That's why you get guys like Reagan coming in. You know, I'm the three worst words. I'm the governor. And I'm here to help or whatever it was. And that's how you get people like Trump in. Is, is you've got this really bad taste in everybody's mouth about government, the Tea Party. You know, government, keep your hands off my Medicare. It's like, what? <laughs> okay, it, it's totally yeah. irrational, but it comes from something. Mm. And they've had, you know, the, the government has isolated incidents that add up because that's the only contact we have. We don't contact the general government. We all It's just a series of isolated incidents that leave a really bad taste in people's mouths. And most people have an example that they remember, and it's subliminal, and this is what we have to deal with. So that's why... Most of my proposals are for the federal government, or they're going to be writing checks to the state and local governments or state governments, which aren't good either, but they're usually not as bad. And, and requiring them to full disclosure to their people, which people like, because the states right now aren't required to present full disclosure of what they do. So the fact that the government money requires full disclosure is at least a good thing. And, you know, let, let them execute. Otherwise, it's not going to get done. Look what happened mm-hmm. to our infrastructure bill. It's down from three and a half trillion to nothing, right? Right now, maybe one point seven. And what is left is all privatization, as I understand it. Is it okay? Yeah, and a tax cut for real estate taxes, but whatever. Yeah. Uh, which is, you know, it's not a bad. You know, the people that helped the incomes wasn't bad or anything, but it still doesn't leave a good taste, right? That that's what where the money is going at this infrastructure bill are coming anyway. Or well, I guess in that case, coming from uh, and some taxes that are going to be. Right now, that's the last thing we need is a tax increase, um, mm-hmm. you know, f- from an economic point of view. Mm-hmm. But and it's spread out over 10 years. So it's like it comes out to like a third of a percent of GDP a year. OK, cut down from two thirds of a percent. So, you know, nothing getting cut to half of nothing because he, all these congressmen are against larger government because you got all these people who've had personal experiences and neighbors who don't want to deal with those guys. I and, just feel- uh, I mean, how I just, does anybody feel about getting stopped by police now? Anybody? You're pretty nervous. Mm-hmm. Okay, what do you I, – I got stopped by a police officer a few years ago, and I got out of my car. He goes, get back in the car. It's like, okay. okay, I didn't know that was a procedure. I'm thinking, would you like me out of the car with my hands up instead of behind that door, you know, where you don't see what I'm doing? Aren't you safer if I walk out of the car? Mm. But no, apparently they're not. So they demand you stay in the car. And where I feel very dangerous, you know, threatened, and the guy's walking over, and uh, I don't know what he's going to do. There are no witnesses or anything. Mm. So why, why am I so nervous about a police officer? You know, and, uh, and because yeah. I've watched TV and I see what they do. 
Right. Okay, the TV claims that if I'm white, I'm okay. Yeah, I believe that. Yeah, I don't right. believe that at all. It just means statistically, you know, <laughs> statistically they've killed a thousand white guys and two hundred black guys or three hundred, and so statistically I'm worse off if I'm black. But how good of, off am I statistically if I'm white? Not very right. good, right? Right, right, right. Okay. Right. Yeah, I'm glad I'm not worse off. Okay, but that doesn't give me a good feeling. These guys scare me to death, and you try and act. As well as you can, but you don't know what's going to happen. Hmm. I just, I just feel like, and I don't know. I mean, I, I'm, I'm very inexperienced. You know, I, I've been pretty much active, starting with Bernie, and before that, I was really quite head in the sand. Yeah. Um, but I just feel like government. You know, this attitude of government can't do well. Okay, so let's make it better. It's like you know, your your yeah. wife complains. We never go out to dinner. I never. We never do anything. We never go out. So let's go out to dinner. You know what? It's, it's like, but, but, but the government. But the government. There is no other government. There is yeah. no other option except for the poor. For poor people especially, there is no yeah. other option for them except but the option to make it yeah. better. Yeah, the option for the federal government now is to just have them write the check and keep their hands off of you. So it's like the woman with a abusive husband. You know, oh, we can work this out. No, you can't. <laughs> maybe, maybe someday in some theoretical world. But in the meantime, you got to get out of there and then right. then work it, it out. You don't want to. You don't want to work. It's not if we can. So, uh, and there's some things that government does well, which is Medicare, right? Compared, I haven't heard anybody. I'm 72 now. Say, oh, I, I hate Medicare. I've just never heard that. And, and, and because the law is well written and and. Yeah. You know, I, I, that because- so let's let's focus on that. Let's go Medicare for everybody. Two gains: we save five hundred billion dollars of real, you know, resource expense for the country by getting rid of all the make work that what becomes make work that private insurance companies have been doing, and we get a good interface between government and the population. <laughs> it's a win-win. You know, that's so critical. We need this. So, uh, and what they're mostly doing is writing checks, right? They're not actually doing surgery or anything like that. So. Um, well, that that I, works out. It works out when you're writing a check right now. In a better, actually, in a different world, maybe they would be better off doing things. You know, regarding writing a check. Yeah. You know, UBI. It's simpler. Let's just write a check. Yeah. yeah as opposed that's to that's a fallacy opposed, of composition. Yeah. But, uh, but as opposed to a job guarantee, which is we pay yeah. people for productivity that they already did, which is obviously it's, safer to no, do. It's, it's, it's worse than that. But, okay. But let's but, look but, at, but well, yeah. hold on. I want to make sure you. Yeah. I'm where I'm coming from. I have a specific. Yeah. I just feel like. There's a UBI supporter who says that, you know, it's simpler. Just give me the money and, I, and I'll determine what I want to do with my life as opposed yeah. to a job guarantee, which is what's more restrictive and I have to work yeah. or starve, you know, whatever. But my point is, is that money can be screwed up even worse, way worse because it's just a concept. So they can yeah. easily screw up your life with, with a check because they yeah. have control of both sides of the equation where the job guarantee is it is – inherently uh, it's more simple. real resources. It's much simpler than that. So let's look at the money story. The government wants to provision itself. It wants soldiers. It wants a legal system. It wants public health. So it, it puts a tax on everybody's house. It creates a tax liability. Now people need the money, so they show up for work. The government hires its public health workers. They get paid. They can pay their house tax, and every and you know everybody's happy. That's the end of the cycle, right? All right, so with UBI, they put a tax on everybody's house, then they give you the money to pay the tax. Uh, and now, now nobody shows up to be a public health care worker. The government can't provision itself. 
You say, well, let's how about if we just give them half the money they need to pay the tax? Okay, well then you get half as many healthcare workers, which is okay. Now, now you either need twice twice as much in taxes or something. You know what I'm saying? You're sort of like missing the point. The whole point of well, the tax the robot, liability. Robots, Warren. Robots. <laughs> yeah, but so, but it's the same. It doesn't matter. Okay, the tax liability is is only there to get people to provision the government. The rest will be working, even with robots. Uh, yeah, they have to provision to, the robots if there's going to be robots. Well, there, there's always more work to do than there is people to do it. Yeah. So it, it's and that's another fallacy of composition. If I say, okay, how many of you would like a personal assistant to help you with your life? Keep track mm-hmm. of your calendar, sort out your emails and your pictures, make sure everything's organized, you know. Uh, so just to help you, you know, in your busy day. And everybody raises their hand. Yeah, I, I need at least one person to do that. Every university professor wants 20 grad students to help him out doing all his mm-hmm. research and everything. Right? Mm-hmm. You say, okay, now I'm going to give everybody – you know, I will give you, you know, fifty thousand, a hundred thousand dollars per special assistant, uh, so that you can all do this. How many special assistants are you going to get hire? And the answer is zero, because mm. if we all want one, who's going to be the personal assistant? <laughs> uh. Right. So there's a fallacy of composition here. We can't all have one. In fact, if we all need one, none of us can have one. Which means oh, wow. every day, every day we wake up into a permanent labor shortage. It's a mm. human condition. Every day, there's more to do than there are people to do it, even with all the robots and everything. And and, and, a, uh, and of course, with the climate crisis, we need. Oh, it's the opposite. There's there's on top of that, it's double. Now we don't have half the people we need to do it. We don't have ten percent of what we need. Okay, for all the stuff that needs to be done. So. If there's robots and somebody's out of work, it's not because of the robots. It's not because there's nothing to do. It's got nothing to do with it. It's a monetary thing. It's because the, the tax liability is too high for the amount of spending. Hmm. The government's not spending enough to cover the need to pay taxes and the need to save. And therefore, there are people looking for paid work who can't find it. That's where it comes from. That's the source of the whole thing. So, again, macro. You got If you think macro enough, the answer is painfully simple. Huh. All right. Well, one follow up of that, if I, if I may, yeah. and that is, that is, okay, I understand what you were saying. That, that's really interesting. Yeah. But as far as, let's say that there was a, a UBI and it was whatever, whatever, $2,000 yeah. a month or $3,000 a month or whatever it was. I mean, I, you know, obviously a full salary yeah. is ridiculous, but let's say whatever, 5000 a month. They can really mess your life up oh, with yeah. that. I mean, really mess your life up. They could change the prices. They could change, you know, especially if they hook it to whatever. I mean, it's just like because it's not hooked to anything real, they can change just numbers in a computer and absolutely just, you know, next Congress yeah, comes well, in and they can. Who do, you, who do you vote for? You vote for the guy who's going to give you the biggest check, right? That's, that's the old risk of the tipping point, which has been used by. I'll say Republicans, you know, to say there's the givers and the takers, right? The people who work and the people who take. And the takers are at 49% now because uh, 49% of the people don't pay taxes. And so we're right on that edge. You better not vote for these Democrats, you know? Well, first of all, they ignore Social Security taxes. Even though it's called a Social Security tax, they call it a contribution to a fund. Uh, And if you uh, include that, now all of a sudden, you know, we're like, 30 points away from a tipping point. But that's not, they're not going to tell you that because that takes away their whole inflammatory message. And so when you add the UBI, now you've really added to that message. 
and, and, but it's even you know the guy who gives me a bigger check i don't care if he gives me a bigger check if prices go up that much you know it's like it's again yeah. it's a both sides of the equation right but if there's two guys running bigger check versus no check who do you vote for Right. And no one asks, okay, well, what are you going to make prices be or whatever? Or how are you going to stabilize prices? Okay. Well, the other right. guy is going to do the same thing, right? <laughs> yeah. As far as you know, I'm right. not saying he is. Okay. It, you know, and and the narrative here, I was just reading it, uh, somebody, uh, I th- it was one of the MMT proponents. They were talking about, you know, the, you know, the package has worked. All these people are getting childcare checks and everything else. That's been supporting our economy. So when you vote at the midterms, you know, who do you think is going to keep those checks coming? I'm going, oh, no, don't don't start with that. That is a losing narrative. Okay, and, uh, you you know, I don't maybe it's a short term narrative or something, but. Yeah, you don't want to get that narrative started. That's civil war right there. I I actually can you just repeat that narrative? I just missed it. So the, the narrative is, you know. It's the Democrats that brought you the child care payments and the tax credits and the stimulus checks and all that. And so in the midterm election, you know, you need to vote for those people. Uh, so those checks will keep coming. Uh, uh, that's pretty bad, huh? You talk about moral hazard. Whoa. Hmm. Okay. Now, you know, that's that's, you know, I'm not saying they should money shouldn't be there, but to start using that as a basis as a mess, political message for why you should vote for this party. And it's not a criticism of the party. It's just telling you about the situation of, of a, a message I just heard. And it was on, I don't know where it was, some Twitter link or something. It wasn't like commercial on television or anything. But it just made me cringe because, uh, you know, this is like not going in a good direction. Mm. Okay. Yeah. Uh, uh, all right, all right, Warren. You've been very generous with the time. Thank you for thank you okay. for this. Uh, and uh, uh, I'm going to cut my previous one where I said this, so I'll say that now. Thank okay. you for your support of me. Um, You're you know, behind the scenes with answering questions over the over the past few years, it's been very helpful. Yeah, and send me a link when you get it, and I'll uh, promote it for you. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. And okay. uh, it's been great talking with you. Yep. Yeah, keep fighting a good fight. Bye bye. is by Rectech. You can find Rectech on SoundCloud and Spotify at W-R-E-C-K underscore T-E-C-H. To record Activist MMT, I use the iOS phone app Tape-A-Call Plus for recording phone calls and Zencaster for internet-based recordings. My post-production workflow starts by editing on the iOS app AnyTune Pro Plus then transferring those timestamps to my Windows desktop. At that point, I crudely process the audio in Audacity and then implement the edits and do all the final processing in the Reaper digital audio workstation. Activist MMT is hosted by Libsyn and the video teasers are created with the online headliner app.
Today's part two of my two-part conversation with Warren Mosler, where he answers several patron questions. You'll find all of them with written responses from Warren, including data from Fred, in the show notes. In part one, Warren talked about how his ideas for MMT came partially from a love of tinkering and, more broadly, a desire to understand complex systems. These systems can be physical, such as controlling electricity with wires, batteries, light bulbs, and soup cans as a child, or race cars and large passenger ferry boats as an adult. The systems can also be conceptual, such as by playing chess and bridge as a teenager. Before we begin part two, a few notes. First, a country trading raw resources such as coal for highly processed products such as televisions is, as Warren says, not inherently a bad thing. What's bad, as illuminated by the work of Fadl Kaboob and others, is when a country is coerced into making a trade they don't want to make. Second, Warren gives many examples of how government's interface with its citizens is poor from anxious cops during routine traffic stops to regulators making blatant mistakes that can only be undone with inordinate and very expensive red tape. I believe strongly, as best I understand, that these incidents are indeed symptoms of the larger problems that the rich bribe our so-called elected representatives and lock the poor out of their government in myriad ways. The poor have no avenues to stand up to these small injustices so the rich have no incentive to stop this terrible behavior. And finally, third, Warren describes one of these incidents when his company was extorted by the IRS for a million dollars to resolve a blatant error by the IRS. Like student loans, of which 90% are owned by the U.S. Department of Education, this is another example of a currency issuer demanding money that it clearly does not need in any practical sense. And now, back to my conversation with Warren Mosler. Enjoy.